Good morning, Disciples Church. My name is Matt Moses, and I have the privilege of reading Scripture this morning, Genesis 41, 8 through 25. Please remain standing if you can, but if it's a longer passage, so if you feel you need to sit, please feel free to. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered and thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was none who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you. Glad you're awake. Glad you're with us. And turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and as always, we are so glad that you are with us today. Well, the recent events uh, regarding the trade of Aaron Rodgers to the Jets has brought... I know, I'm not trying to trigger anybody. Just everybody calm down. All right, we'll get... But it's brought to mind for me and probably to many others the trade that happened some uh, 15 years ago now, which is crazy to think about, of our former quarterback, Brett Favre, also to the Jets. It's brought that back to mind for me in a lot of ways, and it got me thinking this last week um, back to the year 2009. For those of you that remember this, uh, Favre had moved from the Jets. He'd been traded to the Vikings, uh, our our hated enemies to the North. Um, He'd found his way back into the NFC North. He was playing for that team, and, and twice that season the Vikings beat the Packers. You remember this? Just painful, brutal losses. 
And not only did we lose to the Vikings twice that season, but to make matters worse, the Vikings were on a trajectory for the first time to actually win, potentially, a Super Bowl. They had made it as far uh, as the NFC Championship, where they faced off against the Saints. And if you remember that game, it was a great game. Favre was playing out of his mind the entire game. Um, They were down 31-28 to the Saints, uh, and Favre had the ball with just a little bit of time left on the clock. And for Packer fans, I mean, we had been in this situation countless times before, where we had seen Favre take the ball on that last drive, make the winning drive, make all those incredible passes, all those amazing memories. And so as much as we all hated it, it seemed like the writing was on the wall. It just seemed inevitable that he was going to come out of nowhere to win once again. But instead, what we saw was Favre do another thing that we saw him do on countless occasions, which is throw a back-breaking interception with hardly any time left on the clock. And we got for one moment to bask in the schadenfreude of seeing Favre and the Vikings lose in spectacular fashion. And it felt to many like divine retribution, the just deserts of vengeful choices on Brett Favre's part. See, there are times in life where it seems like people get what they deserve, or at least in the case of Favre and the Vikings, what we think they deserved. But when we come to the story of Joseph, as one commentator pointed out, this story demonstrates that an explanation of reward and punishment based on moral choices alone is not adequate to understand God's relationship with his people. See, there are two big misapprehensions that many people have about Christianity, particularly Christianity in the modern age. Even as we move into a post-Christian culture further and further, these two misapprehensions continue to dominate the thinking of many Christians. The first is that once I become a Christian, my life will become easy. Now that, that dream and that, that expectation is fading more and more and more as we move into a post-Christian culture, but for many people, that idea still persists. The idea that prosperity and blessing are always going to be around me, that I'm always going to be blessed and never stressed. It's that kind of prosperity mentality that a lot of Christians take into their Christianity. They presume that by virtue of their Christianity, life is going to be easy. And it neglects the reality, as Dick Lucas reminded when he addressed this passage, that there is a war on. That there is a spiritual war that is happening just underneath the surface of visibility. That there is a spiritual battle that is occurring in the life of believers. That there are, there are forces of evil at work in the world. That Satan is active in the world. That there is temptation and struggle all around us. But I think the bigger problem, the bigger misapprehension that most people struggle with is the second one, which is many Christians hold a concept of Christianity, even self-proclaimed Christians hold this, that has a lot more in common with karma than it does with Jesus. Now Dave talked about this a few months back, but I want to just address it really briefly here because we have a tendency, many of us, to slip into the mindset that what we put into the world, we get back out of it. And the same thing for many of us holds true in our Christianity. We presume that what we put into our Christianity, what we put into our faith, our spiritual walk, 
is going to get us something back in the form of some either material blessing or spiritual blessing that we're going to earn something from God. So when we perceive that we're doing the right things and we're doing well, we presume that God will reward us. And likewise, when we experience hardship and difficulty, many people presume that they've done something to deserve it. Now, the problem with that worldview is at least twofold. First, it puts God in the position of being the responder. It puts him in the position of not being the one who instigates, not being the one who who initiates, but rather being one who operates at the whims of our own humanity, who simply responds to our stimuli. And that belies everything we know about who God is. In the book of Jeremiah, God says it this way, and in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, and speaking to the prophet, he says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now think about that just for a moment. What God is saying to the prophet Jeremiah is, before you ever even existed in earthly human terms, before you were born, before you were even in the womb, I knew you. That God, in ways that we cannot in our human mind understand, knew Jeremiah before time began. And as he states explicitly in this text, knew him before he was even a thought in his parents' minds. Known by God. And that God initiated something in the life of Jeremiah before before Jeremiah was even aware of what was going on. To quote Lucas again, God starts working in your life long before you come to Christ. He has been at work in eternity past, working out in your own life the things that will affect your eternity future. He is always the initiator, and we are always the respondent. But second, and I think maybe even more importantly in terms of our human understanding, the problem with that karmic understanding of Christianity is that it neglects the role of grace. We've had people ask us over the years, why do you talk about grace so much? We get it, move on, let's get to the good stuff. Tell me now why I get grace, I've got that, I've got that all figured out, let's move on now to what we actually need to address. Why do you spend so much time talking about it? And here's why we at Disciples Church and Christianity historically has spent so much time addressing and reminding and reiterating the importance of grace because grace is the natural posture that God takes towards his people. It is the functional basis of his relationship with us. Grace is the prevailing disposition of a loving God toward his feeble people. And grace is the overriding experience of our interactions with God. Grace is something that is so beyond our comprehension, it is so beyond our grasp, it is so beyond our ability to completely and fully understand that we spend all of our lives on this earth just scratching the surface of the depth of what grace is and what it accomplishes in our lives. And it is something that we will continue to grow to understand throughout the course of eternity. That God's grace, his unmerited favor, his unearned love, his unconditional love is the means through which he interacts with his people. So what is grace? Here's my favorite definition that I've come across recently. 
I want to quote it for you. It says this, Broadly speaking, grace can be understood as God's unmerited favor towards human beings. His one-way, sacrificial love for sinful men and women who deserve anything but It is a gift with no strings attached. Grace is the answer we receive in Christ to the question of God's disposition toward troubled people like you and me. How many times can we mess up before we have exhausted God's forgiveness? In Christ, God's grace is revealed to be inexhaustible. And grace is shallow enough that babies can wade into it and deep enough that elephants can swim. the moment we presume that we fully understand grace, we reveal how little we understand grace at all. This one-way, sacrificial love, the God of the universe, regardless of anything about you that could be lovable or, or otherwise draw his affection or his attention of his own accord because of who he is, extends his love in one direction, toward you. And applied to the life of Joseph, what this means is that Joseph's hard experience was not a result of his failings, nor was his blessing a reward for a job well done. All of it from beginning to end was the invisible hand of God's grace leading and guiding and providing in an unmistakable way to bring Joseph to exactly the point that God desired for him and using sinful and even tragic human circumstances to bring it about. In other words, if nothing else, Joseph's life works to undo our poor presuppositions. After being betrayed by his family and sold into slavery, Joseph lands at the house of Potiphar. He works as a slave, and he works hard during that time. He becomes the trusted overseer of Potiphar's house, as Dave addressed last week. Joseph is then put into this this unenviable circumstance. He's propositioned by his master's wife, but he does the morally right thing. He says, In an unbelievable moment of moral triumph, he says, I can't sin against God by participating in this sin. I can't sin against God by doing this. And so Potiphar's wife makes up a lie and accuses Joseph and his moral fortitude, his correct decision, his rightness before God lands him in prison. And you can imagine how potentially disheartening this could have been for Joseph. We like to think of these characters, particularly these characters in the Old Testament, we like to think about them as these stoic, unblinking superheroes. That Joseph never had a moment of doubt, never had a question, never had a fear. That he just walked on unmoved. But understand that these men and women face temptations and doubt and fear like anybody else. During his time in Egypt, he showed himself to be dependable. He becomes the, he becomes the most trusted confidant of the captain of the guard to the point where he's actually put in charge of the other prisoners. And while he's in prison, the captain of the guard comes to him and says, we have these two new prisoners, the cupbearer and the baker of the king who've been put in here, and I want you to take specific charge over them. And these two men who had been servants to the king each have dreams. They come to Joseph, they're 
They're scared of the dream that they've experienced, and they come to Joseph, they share to him what happened, and and Joseph uh, interprets the dreams for these two men. He says to the baker, understand that by virtue of what it is you've dreamed, Pharaoh is going to call you back out into his court, but he's going to hang you and kill you. And to the cupbearer, he says, by virtue of your dream, Pharaoh is going to call you back into his court, but you're going to be restored to your previous occupation. And upon hearing this news, the cupbearer says to Joseph, don't worry, I will remember you when I get out of here. I'm going to plead your case to the Pharaoh. I'm going to make sure that you are released from this prison. Once again, Joseph does the right thing. He helps out the baker. He helps out the cupbearer. And what happens? The cupbearer forgets about him for two years. Joseph, according to some Jewish scholars, spends about 12 years in an Egyptian prison. See, the truth is, we may, we may not always prosper, humanly speaking, when we do the right thing before God. We may not get the rewards that we presume ought be coming to us. We may not get the affirmation from other people that we presume should be extended to us. And there are all sorts of ways in which we, by faithfully obeying and standing for what is right, may actually receive the disapproval of the world around us. Or at the very least, may find ourselves in a position like Joseph, where we presume by having done the right thing before God, that we will see an immediate response from him, a a release from him, freedom in this case offered to him. And so we can only imagine how Joseph might have found himself in this moment, depressed and lonely and frustrated. And if Joseph would have adopted the mentality of many modern Christians, he might have assumed that he had done something to stir up God's ire. How many times in our own lives have we viewed painful circumstances as punishment? Difficult diagnoses, accidents, family losses, job losses, economic downturns, struggles with children, and wondered, is there something that I did to deserve this? Is God punishing me? We go through difficulty and we assume that God has forgotten us, that he's angry with us, that he's punishing us, despite all the reassurances of our absolute forgiveness and acceptance. See, in all of our lives, but especially our spiritual life, we have a tendency to hold far too high of a view of our own importance and agency and far too low of a view of God's. It's the reason why we get, when we get into these dark seasons of life, as we just sang about in a moment, a moment ago, we tend to be so dominated by our own anxieties and our own depression. We presume that since we can't see a way forward and since we don't know what the outcome is going to be, that there must not be a right outcome. What is anxiety on its face if not a presumption that there is no hope? What is depression if not at least in part a presumption that there will be no relief? And I'm not pretending here that either of those things are inherently simply a decision, but what I'm saying is at the very basis, what those things are is a presumption that life ought to be different, that our circumstances should be different than what it is that we're currently experiencing. 
and that since we can't see a way out, a way out must not exist. And Joseph might have had that notion as well if it wasn't for what we read in Genesis 39, verse 23, which says this, that though he was in prison, the Lord was with him. And the truth is, for those that know Jesus Christ, the Lord is with you today, just as he was with Joseph. He is working even in those moments when you don't see progress. He's bringing about the circumstances for your joy and deliverance, even when you've lost all hope. Well, finally, in this text, the moment comes for God to raise up his servant, Joseph, and for potentially the first time in a dozen years, Joseph is actually given a glimpse of why perhaps a God that he trusted implicitly would allow all of this to happen. Notice, he doesn't find this out on day one. He's not told in the moment that he's sold into slavery, Joseph, don't worry. Everything's going to work out great. You just got to give it a good 17, 20 years to bring it about. Maybe if he'd been told that, he could hold on to that hope, but he's not given that. He has no idea when things are going to change for him. Now here he is, having been in slavery for several years, now in prison for 12 years. He gets called up out of nowhere because Pharaoh has a dream. He has this strange dream that we read about in this text that is obvious to us because we know the interpretation of the dream, but certainly was not obvious to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has this dream that there's these seven beautiful, hearty, healthy cows that are eaten up by these seven gaunt cows. What in the world could that mean? The next night he has a similar dream. Here, here, are, these, uh, here, here are these stalks of, of wheat that have seven ears on them, good and healthy. A wind comes out of the east, and in their place grows up these seven ugly, depleted pieces of grain. Pharaoh's trying to figure out what all this means. He calls in the magicians. He calls in his advisors. He, he pleads with them to give an answer to his question. And who comes up with the answer that Pharaoh's looking for? He says, I don't know what your dream means, says the cupbearer. But there was this guy in prison, and I'm just now remembering this. That's actually what he says in here. I'm just now rem- remembering that I've made a huge mistake. I was supposed to tell you something two years ago, and I'm I'm sorry that it took me this long, but two years ago, there was this guy that really helped me out, this Hebrew in prison. He was able to interpret my dreams. Maybe you should talk to him. And without hesitating, Pharaoh calls him forward. And this moment is really the moment, according to one commentator, where we see Joseph making the transition from, from being a son of Abraham to being essentially an Egyptian. He's shaved, probably his head and his beard, so he's going to look like an Egyptian. He's put on fresh clothes. He comes into the presence of Pharaoh. And in this moment, he's approached by Pharaoh himself. He finds himself face to face with the ruler of the most powerful nation in the world at the time, being asked if he could give insight into the dreams. And notice Joseph's response in verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And as ordinary as Joseph's response is to us in this text, it's actually quite startling. Because remember who it is that he's speaking to in this moment. He is speaking to the Pharaoh. And Pharaohs at this time were not just political leaders. They weren't just governmental leaders. Pharaohs were considered to be the physical embodiments of God. If you've ever studied Egyptian history and you've heard of the god Horus, The Pharaoh was considered to be the physical embodiment of the god Horus. 
So for Pharaoh in this moment to admit that he needed an answer from the God of Joseph was to admit his own impotence. It was to admit in front of all his spiritual advisors and all of his counselors that he did not have the answer that he alone was supposed to be able to possess. That God, the one true God of the universe, was using a slave and a felon to give Pharaoh the answer that he most desperately needed. And all of this is done to show the divine power of that one true God. And on top of that, notice Joseph's wording. Because Joseph doesn't view this as an opportunity to finally have his shot to escape prison and set about his own ambitions and set things right in the world. No, the first words out of his mouth are, I can't do the thing that you're asking me to do. But my God can give you an answer. See, we read these Old Testament stories, and as I mentioned a moment ago, we have a tendency to view these individuals as superheroes, containing some level of strength and power that is unknown and unable to be tapped by mere mortals like us. But Joseph, in this moment, in the moment that's about to reset his entire life, makes the statement, this has nothing to do with me but it has everything to do with God. And if you are here and know Jesus Christ, the very same thing that Joseph said can come out of your mouth. Though I may not have the answers and I may not have the power and I may not have the strength and I may not have the ability, I know one who does. It is not in me God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He refuses to take the credit for what God alone can do. Now notice the interpretation that Joseph gives. It's lengthy, but I'll read it for you. Beginning in verse 25, this is not in your bulletin. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are also seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Here, God is showing Joseph that he still has a plan for him. All of this time that he had spent in slavery, all of the betrayal from his brothers, all of the time in prison had not been for nothing. None of it had been wasted. And in fact, as Dave mentioned last week, God has been preparing Joseph in unbelievable ways for this exact moment. First with his own dreams in the presence of his brothers, then with the dreams in the prison, and likely dreams that were not even told about in Scripture. And God not only reassured Joseph through giving him the interpretation of this dream, but he was also reminding Joseph, Pharaoh, and everyone else there that he and no one else was calling the shots. 
This thing is fixed by God, Joseph says, and Joseph, at the prompting of God, then does something unexpected. He goes beyond what's been asked of him by Pharaoh, and he starts to give advice to Pharaoh on how to move forward. This is a dangerous proposition. Remember, you're speaking to someone who views themselves and whom everyone else views as a god, and he's now going to give this man advice. Verse 33, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all of the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants." Now, without even realizing it in this moment, but according to the prompting of God, as Joseph is giving this instruction to the Pharaoh, he was, he was actually writing his own job description. And not only was he writing his own job description, but he was submitting his own resume. He says to Pharaoh, I want you to find somebody who's discerning and put him in charge. It reminds me of when George W. Bush appointed Dick Cheney to lead his vice presidential search committee. And and Dick Cheney comes back to George W. and says, man, I found the perfect guy. You're going to love him. He's just great. I found the perfect person, and he's me, right? This is essentially what Joseph does in this text, verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And once again, we see this incredible pattern continue in Joseph's life. In every single situation he's put in, people can't help but promote him. He steps into a position of leadership in Potiphar's house. He steps into a position of leadership in the prison. And now he goes from the prison to the penthouse. Second in command over everything. Pharaoh actually says, the only area in which I have superiority over you is my title. And as Dave mentioned last week, because of the goodness and the grace of God, all of Joseph's experience has become a master class in leadership. Because of God's faithfulness, all of his tragedies turned into opportunities. Because of God's goodness, all of his hardships became moments in which his faith and his abilities were honed. And notice that even in this moment, the Bible does not put the emphasis on Joseph's abilities, but rather on God's providence. To the point where Pharaoh himself, the self-proclaimed demigod, notices and makes the statement in verse 38, can we find in a man, a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Since God has shown you all this, you are going to be second in charge. Even the pagan Pharaoh couldn't help but see the hand of God at work in Joseph's life. Because we, as we say often, Everything that God does is for your ultimate joy and for his ultimate glory. I came across a quote this week 
in a commentary on Genesis that I thought was helpful. And the author made this statement. He said, not only is God's timetable difficult for us to anticipate, but God's methods may be difficult for us to recognize. Not only is his timetable unexpected, but his methods are unexpected. And I wonder as we look at our own lives and consider the things that we've experienced, and I say this realizing that there are some in this room today who are going through unbelievable hardship. Tragedy and family difficulties and the loss of loved ones and diagnoses and all kinds of scenarios that I'm not aware of and that maybe nobody else in your life is aware of. But do you recognize and do you realize that God is not only aware of those things, but that his hand is on the wheel of your life? That he still reigns and he's still God. That even in the moments where it seems like your life is out of control, and even in the moments where, where you're experiencing hardships and heartaches, where you can't imagine why God would allow them into your life. That he is not wasting any of that. That he has a divine purpose in it for you. And though the timetable is not what you would want, and though the method is likely what you would not want, he is still doing his will and his work in your life for your blessing. Now, why and how can those things ultimately turn for our blessing? Notice the end of the text, beginning in verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Listen, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. See, not only is God in control in the minutia of your own life, but his hand is in control in the expanse of the universe. And the converse of that is that the very same God who spoke the planets into motion and put the stars in the sky and filled the oceans with water, the God who has that much power and that much influence and that much creativity is the same God who cares about the minutiae of your life. That he is not like us. He can see the forest and the trees. He's not caught off guard by the little things, nor is he thrown by the big things. All of it is in his hands, and he's working out all of it for his plan and for his purpose. So much so that this man goes from being a slave to a savior. He is suddenly but not surprisingly in the plan of God, put into a position to provide for the needs of this entire region, up to and including, by the way, the needs of his homeland, his father and his brothers. 
And in this grand orchestration of God's design, not only is he doing something miraculous and amazing in Joseph's life, but to call back to something we addressed months ago, which is the promise that God gave to Abraham, God is making good on his promise to Abraham and his descendants. God had told Abraham, from you is going to come this great line of people. There's going to be the sands of the sea worth of people. So many you can't even count them. The influence that's going to come through your line is going to be unreal, unbelievable. And in this moment, as his father and brothers are at home on the verge of starvation, almost undoubtedly they must be wondering, is this the moment where God's hand of faithfulness is pulled away from our family? How can God possibly deliver us? But in ways that they had not expected, in fact, in ways that they had actively worked against some 20-odd years earlier, God had put into motion, through their intentions for evil, his plan for deliverance. That is unbelievable. And all of it is done by God alone. No human orchestration, no human planning. Human beings couldn't have come up with this plan if we tried. And what's even more incredible is that Joseph's life is not only an example of God's faithfulness, but as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it's a picture, a foretaste, a forerunner of who Jesus Christ was going to be. Because as one commentator said, Joseph came to power by humble subservience to others. And if that description rings a bell, it's because that description is also true of Jesus. Like Joseph, Jesus came first as a servant. In humble obedience to the Father, he became a slave to the law and its uncompromising demands. He lived a life that was moral and upright, but even more so than Joseph in that he never sinned. And for his obedience and his morality, he endured mistreatment, abuse, and betrayal. And as if that weren't enough, he took on the undesirable task of ministering like Joseph did to undesirable people. He dined with thieves and he drank with sinners. He communed with prostitutes. He healed lepers. He visited the sick. He spoke to the demon-possessed. He made time for children and he washed the disciples' feet. And much like Joseph, in a twist of fate that no human being could have ever scripted, he was killed by those he came to serve. But his death ushered in his return as king. Through living this life of service, he could now bring freedom and deliverance to those who were enslaved to the law and crushed by its consequences. Much like Joseph, he could naturalize us, but naturalize us as citizens of heaven under a whole new monarch one who wisely directed the paths of our lives, provides for our, ta- for our needs in times of desperation, and graciously leads, guides, and guards his children. See, Jesus has the heart of a shepherd. He sees and knows our errant ways. 
as we sometimes mention in our confession of faith, he remembers that we are dust. And his expectations are attuned rightly in dealing with dust. He guards us back into the path for our own providence. He leads us to still waters. He restores our soul. He corrects when correction is needed and he carries us when we can't walk back. That is what Joseph's rise anticipated. That there was another one who would come as a servant and become a savior. And in Jesus Christ, we receive freedom and deliverance and provision in the deepest and most desperate areas of our life. So thank God that he doesn't operate according to karma. That his grace is his operating principle and his posture toward his people. Because anything short of that would have left us desperate and bent toward hell. So rest today in the fact that he knows where you are in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the questions, that he has not abandoned you, that he knows you and loves you, and that he is providing a way for you, even if you can't see it. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the amazing life of Joseph, and it is amazing. And we thank you for all of the moral lessons that we can learn from Joseph's life about how to live and how to lead and what to do. But God, we thank you even more for the lesson that we learn about who you are, that you are the star, that you are the main character, that your unseen hand is the author of the story of Joseph's life. And we thank you that because of that, just as we see you working everything out for his good and for, your, and for your glory and for the benefit of your people, in the very same way you are working that in our lives in ways that we can't see, through methods we don't understand, in timetables we would not desire. So God, help us, help us to believe even when we don't see a reason to believe. Help us to trust even when we have lost hope. not hoping for the mere sake of hope, but hoping because the one who authors our story and knows the end from the beginning is the one who also loves us in every area of our life and knows the minutia of what's going on in our heart, mind, and soul. So God, we thank you that you are that sort of God, that you hear and deliver, and that you are with us in those moments. And we pray all these things in your beautiful name. Amen.